Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world. From the European Council on Foreign Relations, my name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director of ECFR and the leader of the coup against Mark Leonard's World in 30 Minutes podcast while he's on sabbatical. And this week, as part of our rolling coup, we have a very special guest, Anu Bradford. Anu is the Henry L. Moses Professor of Law and International Organization at Columbia University and the author in 2020 of a very influential book, The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World, which took the world of EU watchers by storm. Uh, I was a bit surprised and was described by Andrew Moravchik, a professor at Princeton, as, quote, the single most important book on Europe's global influence to appear in decades. So following up on that, which is a hard thing to do, uh, she released in October a follow-up, Digital Empires, the Global Battle to Regulate Technology. In this book, she argues that the global regulatory battle, principally between the United States, China, and the European Union, is intensifying as all three try to rein in the most powerful tech companies in the world while attempting to expand their influence in the digital world. So we're going to discuss that book today, uh, as well as the related issues. Welcome to the podcast, Anu. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Delighted to be here. So let's start with the sort of usual question that I think is important to ask anybody who's just written a new book. Why did you write it? What, what motivated you to write this book? And maybe in this particular case, uh, since you released a book that was quite influential on, on our sort of related topic or closely related topic, what has changed since you wrote The Brussels Effect? Yeah, so this book really emerged from the conversations following the Brussels effect. So after I wrote that book, I think a couple of things happened. So first of all, the tech war between the U.S. and China was really escalating. It was intensifying, and I was curious to, to try to provide an analytical framework that helps us understand what that means for the world and what that means for Europe. So what is Europe's place in that increasingly challenging digital world. The second thing that happened is that the European Union really ramped up its regulatory agenda in the domain of digital economy. So we have seen massively important developments, the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, now hopefully soon to be a finalized AI Act. So I, I sense that the direction of the regulation was really going towards an increasing regulation of the digital economy. And that started to be part of the global conversation. So I wanted to better understand how this momentum behind tech regulation then affects the global digital economy. What are the key differences among the countries, the key players, and, and what kind of conflicts or prospects for cooperation then emerges from those differences? So it actually, I mean, from my perspective in reading the book, the that ability to describe the distinct regulatory approaches, which is has this sort of unique quality of being both uh, feeling quite intuitive and obvious and yet not actually something that you knew before the book, before you read the book, which is a neat trick, I think. Um, I think later on, I'll claim to have known this all along. Um, I'm wondering if you can... This is an incredible contribution. So I'm wondering if you can describe the three distinct approaches you give to, to creating digital empires in the book. The, uh, the American market-driven model, 
the Chinese state-driven model and the European rights-driven model. Yes, so Jeremy, I think these three models really capture the key differences in how the three technology and regulatory powers approach the relationship between the state and the market and the individual. And that has then led to these different approaches. So the American market-driven model really emphasizes free markets, free speech, incentives to innovate, and it reserves a very minimalist role for the state and in practice hands over the governance of technology to the tech companies themselves. So it is a techno-libertarian, techno-optimist view of the world. The Chinese state-driven model um, focuses on making China a technological superpower, and it is prepared to leverage state resources to meet that goal. But China also deploys technology as a tool for surveillance and censorship and propaganda in an effort to then ensure social stability within the nation and entrench the political power of the Chinese Communist Party. So then the question of where where do the Europeans fit in, in this picture? And the Europeans are often portrayed as being forced to choose between the American digital world and the Chinese digital world lacking a robust technology industry of its own. But I argue that for the Europeans, they can't make that choice and they are not forced to make that choice because for the Europeans, the Chinese model is simply too oppressive, but the American model is too permissive. So the Europeans have pioneered their own regulatory model, what I call the rights-driven model. And that really is centered on this notion of a human-centric digital transformation where the protection of fundamental rights of individuals, the preservation of democratic structures of the society, and a pursuit of a more fair digital economy, uh, an economy where we are distributing the gains from digital transformation more equally. So transferring power away from the big platforms to smaller players, to individual users, and to the society at large. So that's basically, Jeremy, the the big picture of the three regulatory models. And may I also say why I call them empires, because empires is obviously a big word. And there the idea is that I think it is helpful for us uh, in using the term because none of these regulatory models are confined to the jurisdictions themselves. Instead, each empire is also exporting its respective regulatory model. And you find that the models are in rivalry, I guess, um, particularly for third parties. So can you describe how they how third parties are um, influenced by this? Are they adopting one of the three models? Or are they developing their own? Or, or are they picking and choosing? How does that work? Yeah. So what is interesting to me is that all three empires are exporting something different. So they are expanding the sphere of their digital empire. They influence third markets uh, in different ways. So Americans are primarily exporting the private power of their tech companies. So these companies were set free to take over the world, and that is exactly what they have done. So the U.S. tech companies can be found everywhere, and they are then exporting to foreign markets this ethos of a market-driven, techno-libertarian view of the world. And the Chinese are mainly exporting infrastructure power. So in the third countries, they are often recipients of Chinese 5G networks and undersea cables and data centers, smart cities, safe cities. And and the Europeans, um, then they are exporting the superpower that the Europeans have, which is regulation. The Europeans are often the front runners in drafting rules for the digital world. And then through this phenomenon that I have 
called the Brussels effect, are also expanding their, the reach of those regulations across the global marketplace. So here, Jeremy, because each empire is contributing something different, a different layer to the digital ecosystem, they also then coexist or collide in many third markets because there are many markets where you feel the presence of U.S. tech companies, Chinese infrastructure, and European regulations. So that then causes a rivalry. And, and I distinguish between two types of battles. So one is really this horizontal battle that takes place between the empires. So when we talk about the U.S.-China tech war being the most prominent, most consequential potentially of those battles, but we also witness significant battles between the U.S. and the EU, and those are regulatory battles where the Europeans feel that the American private power, those tech companies are overreaching exploiting European consumers, undermining their rights, and are responding with regulation. And then the Americans feel that it is the European regulators that are overreaching, stepping onto their territory and regulating their companies. So those are some of the rivalries that I, I discuss and the battles that the countries need to navigate, but also multinational companies, the tech companies that are present in multiple markets, they confront often at the same time the different demands of different regulatory empires. So uh, in, in part, what you're saying is that maybe as we, uh, and I guess it's, I, I guess maybe you would agree that it's even within the digital empires, all three models are present. Because um, obviously American tech companies are present in all three places. Chinese infrastructure is present in all three places. Uh, and European regulation to a greater or lesser degree is present. Um, so it's entirely possible, for example, that as we record this podcast through multiple layers of technology and regulation, that we are currently relying on Chinese infrastructure, American innovation, and European regulation to protect it all. Um, so this is a sort of rivalry, a, a, a struggle between empires that's taking place uh, everywhere, and and. And you described, as you, as you just did, two distinct um, types of rivalries, the vertical rivalry, which is between the governments and the tech companies, and the horizontal rivalry, which is between the digital empires. So I'm wondering, in both of those rivalries, um, who is winning? Yeah, I think that is probably the most uh, interesting or important question. And I do uh, make some predictions in, in that regard. Jeremy, so one prediction is that the American digital empire is declining. The world is increasingly turning away from the market-driven model. There is decreasing trust in tech companies being able to self-govern and a growing awareness of the need for the governments to step in. So the U.S. is losing the ideological battle. And that means a greater space for the European model to gain influence, in particular in the democratic world. So many democratic countries are now coalescing behind a variant of the European rights-driven model. But at the same time, there's very little appeal for that model in the authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning world. And that's where the Chinese state-driven model is doing very well. So what I see emerge in this horizontal battle is a rivalry between a group of techno-democracies, countries that are now seeking to regulate technology with the view of preserving the rights of individuals and democratic structures of society, 
and on the other hand, a, a group of sort of China-led techno-autocracies that want to ensure that state maintains its control and is able to deploy technology to entrench that control. So that is that is one uh, trend that I think is very visible already in the horizontal battle. Maybe we can push down a little bit on that, uh, actually, because I think maybe for a lot of readers, the most surprising conclusion of your book will be that the European model is beating the American model. Um, it's uh, It's not... It's not reflected, I would say, in the headlines that people generally read on these on these types of issues. Um, so I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more, a little bit more in a little bit more detail why you think this European model is beating the American model, and 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 how you how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, so I think in many ways that tech companies uh, have there's a consensus that tech companies have failed us. They have failed us repeatedly. They have failed us spectacularly. And, and that is now has led to this backlash against the American market-driven model, backlash against the tech companies. Uh, there's concern that these companies have simply become too powerful and now have so much power that they cannot even anymore responsibly handle. They exert economic power, political power, cultural power, informational power, and are shaping the individual's lives and societies in ways that is not only beneficial. So this early techno-optimist promise of a more robust democracy that would ensue from these platforms that give space for diverse voices to contribute to public conversation, that has not really played out that way. Instead, we are surrounded in online spaces with hate speech and disinformation that is also threatening the very pillars of our democracy, democratic institutions, and conversations in the public space. So that is, I think, one significant concern. There's also a concern of just increasingly concentrated economy. So the idea that we do need antitrust laws, or what we call in Europe competition laws, to then make sure that the markets actually remain competitive. So this is no longer the kind of prosperous free market where many companies have the opportunity to provide products and services to individuals and individuals have a choice across those different products. There are deep concerns about invasions of privacy uh, because the business models of these tech giants exploit the data of individual consumers and then monetize that data. So there is just now an understanding of the extent of that power, of the harms associated with that power, and the European model is seen as best suited to then contain that power. And I think even the Americans are now having second thoughts about the techno-libertarian priors. So you see the public opinion shifting in the US. American citizens want more tech regulation. You see many lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans, propose bills in Congress that are seeking to overturn this consensus around the market-driven model. It's really the persistent lobbying and the continuing dysfunction of Congress that really sustains anymore this market-driven model, but it no longer enjoys the broad public support, even in the U.S. Yeah, even from this U.S. citizen. The confusion I had with all of that was that you make a very, very convincing argument that the EU's normative model is winning against the American normative model. It's a less convincing argument that it will be Europe that will be the holder of that normative model. So you could make the case 
I think you do, that, that US and Europe are converging on a normative model, which is closer to the European than to the original American. But why should we expect that in that regulatory model, it will be Europe that will be making the decisions and not the United States having adopted the European model that will then use its own politics, its own um, decisions about which specific regulations to, to implement, and maybe most importantly, its own national security and um, industrial interests to make these decisions rather than Europe. So I am not saying that the Europeans would then in the future always continue to write the rules for the Americans. Thus far, the Americans have largely outsourced the regulation of their tech companies to the Europeans. It has been the Brussels effect that has been containing the American tech companies much more than anything coming out of Washington. But the the shift towards the European rights-driven model can entail that Americans adopt their own variant of the European rights-driven model. And that means it's not 100% the same. The national security concerns remain paramount to the U.S., but what also, I believe, ultimately leads to somewhat of a less regulated marketplace in the U.S., because this is one key argument of the book, Jeremy, that these two levels of battles, the horizontal battle between the empires and the vertical battle, which is the battle between the governments and tech companies, those are interlinked. So now when the U.S. is considering in engaging into a more assertive vertical battle against its tech companies and adopting a variant of a European type of regulatory rights-driven regulatory model, that vertical battle takes place in the shadow of the horizontal battle, which is the tech rivalry against China. So the U.S. cannot be too assertive in containing its tech companies because that is the very asset that the U.S. has and needs in order to prevail against China in the tech rivalry. So the, the U.S. will always be somewhat more restrained in regulating its tech companies because it is fearful that it would otherwise constrain their innovative capabilities, which would then have an adverse effect as the U.S. is trying to continue to build its technological leadership, which it needs in the, in the economic battle, in the geopolitical battle, even in the military battle against China. So does this mean that even as your, I guess it's fair to say, optimistic that the European rights-driven model is, is winning, Against the against the U.S. model, that you're maybe pessimistic that the Europe that Europe itself that the Brussels effect will prevail. That uh, is, is that how I'm hearing you, or are you saying something else? No, I I don't think the question is whether the U.S. will continue to exclusively have to rely on the Brussels effect, or whether its own institutions can also then entrench that shifting political uh, uh, preferences of citizens and lawmakers into actual American law. But I think there will be still elements of the Brussels effect that continue to shape the marketplace. So the EU has passed on regulations that are very ambitious and, and that are often benchmarks for the other governments. But also there are regulations that affect so fundamentally the business models of the U.S. tech companies And they are now facing the questions whether they are going to extend those those changed business models and practices to markets outside of the EU as well. So, Jeremy, when um, Facebook and Instagram can no longer 
um, engage in targeted advertising against minors so they cannot exploit the European youth under the DSA, the Digital Services Act. The question is whether it is any more sustainable for them to continue to engage in that practice in the United States. Because the obligations coming from Brussels that is now shaping their practices in the EU is also chasing expectations among U.S. consumers, among U.S. regulators. And it may be very hard for Facebook to say that, look, we no longer exploit the European miners, but we don't care about uh, uh, extending those same protections to the United States. So I think we will continue to see some elements of this. Just uh, recently, Apple was reported of um, now launching its next variant of the iPhone uh, with that will be uh, compliant with the Digital Markets Act. That calls for interoperability across messages. And there was no indication. Instead, Apple actually said that it, it wouldn't confine its compliance to Europe alone, that it's more likely that that is going to be extended outside of the EU as well. So I think what we see, Jeremy, is in parallel the continuation of the Brussels effect, at least across to some features and some aspects of the conduct of these tech companies that is prompted by EU regulation. And we see a changed conversation among the regulators, among the governments that are now considering whether they also ought to respond to this, this shifting political sentiment among the citizens that, that they need to uh, take responsibility and regulate their own economy with their own rules as well. Okay, let's move then to the to the other part of the battle. You 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 are sort of half predicting, half hoping that the democracies will align both their models and their actions. Um, you're, it seems to me you're less uh, optimistic about a resolution between the techno democracies and the techno authoritarians. Who is winning in that rivalry? That is a really intense and consequential rivalry because ultimately what is at stake there is the future of liberal democracy. So that to me is the most important battle of them all. And here, I think we need to be really conscious that China has certain advantages in that rivalry. So China is building vital infrastructures in many parts of the world. And it is not surprising that many developing countries, authoritarian-leaning countries, are accepting that infrastructure. So for many countries, that is the path they have to digital development. The Chinese infrastructure is cheap and it's good, and Europeans and Americans are not providing an alternative. So often China is the only game in town, and China is able to then reach into those societies by building the infrastructures, which then is a backbone of the tech ecosystems in those countries. There's also something else, uh, Jeremy, that makes it very difficult for the, uh, the democracies to counter the Chinese influence. Because China has, and this is, I'm, I'm not very comfortable making this argument, but I think it happens to be true and it needs to be acknowledged, is that China has shown to the world that freedom is not necessary for innovation. They have managed to create a thriving tech economy without being free. So we cannot also go to those countries and say, look, if you follow the Chinese model, you get control, but you will not experience economic growth. You will not see innovation. These countries look at China and say, look, it seems like I can have both. I can have political control, which I like, and I don't need to make trade-offs in terms of innovation. So I think that's one thing that makes this battle very, very hard. And Jeremy, if I, if I can add, 
the, the liberal democracies are also struggling to show that their governance model works. The U.S. is having a really hard time passing any legislation through Congress. China doesn't have a difficulty legislating. The Europeans can legislate, but they are struggling to enforce their regulations. The Chi- like Chinese don't have the same problem. If the Chinese Communist Party decides it's time to crack down on big tech, the Chinese Communist Party is cracking down on big tech. Those tech companies in China don't drag the government to the court for a decade uh, and, and where the government would need to fear losing those battles. So I think the big challenge for the European Union and the US and other democratic countries is now to prove that there is a liberal democratic way to govern technology so that it's not that only authoritarians are capable of doing so. Whereas the only alternative in the democratic world is that in practice, the EU may have been able to win the the ideological battle, but the US model prevails because we are being governed by the tech companies. Yeah, it must be fun to be a Chinese regulator. Uh, Interestingly, I think maybe even since you wrote the book, there's been a fair amount of speculation, even research challenging a bit the view that the Chinese are able to foster a, a sort of innovative growth economy um, with with uh, with uh, in, with in the context of an authoritarian state, and in part this is because the President Xi has initiated a big crackdown against Chinese tech companies, and and some people are starting to argue, notably Adam Posen, that um, that you can see this in the growth figures that. Uh, that there has been a change in the Chinese political economy, which is now changing their innovative capacity. This is a very recent argument. Uh, and, you know, since it, it kind of relies on trend data for about three months, um, but it's quite intriguing. So I'm wondering how you respond to that and, um, and whether you think that that maybe, does that change any of your perspectives on the effectiveness of the Chinese model? Yeah, so I think the Chinese model has many vulnerabilities and Chinese economy has many challenges, which is also going to have an impact in the environment within which the tech companies are pursuing growth. So I don't think it's going to be an easy ride for Chinese tech companies. They are facing a government that is very unpredictable. So we see this pendulum swing often very fast in different directions. And that is obviously a challenge for any, any tech company. And we saw really negative effects when uh, the government so speedily started to rein in the tech companies. And, and we saw massive uh, uh, shifts in the, the stock values. And um, so I, I think Chinese government itself is a, a not just a, a sort of source of support and growth for the Chinese tech companies, but also an unpredictable ally that can turn against them when these companies no longer squarely serve the interest of the, the Communist Party. Then also for Chinese companies, obviously, they are uh, suffering the effects of the tech war. So that has also been uh, very challenging. So they cannot just easily diversify against away from the domestic market and count on continuing access to the U.S. market or the, the markets of some of the U.S. allies. So there, there are certain challenges for these Chinese tech companies that are embedded in the, the, uh, the, the particular way that the Communist Party governs. And, and I will also uh, mention the, the, the recent developments in generative AI. 
This is where the Chinese companies are currently lagging behind their U.S. counterparts. And one challenge for them is that the AI uh, models in China need to remain consistent with the censorship models. So there are limits to how you can train these models with the data and by ensuring that the outputs will not undermine the message of the Communist Party. And that is an additional challenge that may then ultimately allow the US and the EU and other democracies to say that, look, we are vindicated, that ultimately you do see more innovation when you do have freedom. But I think it's hard to look at China's track record to date and say that that authoritarian government's model is fundamentally inconsistent of the country's ability to produce any innovations. Fair enough. Though it's also good to hear that it's going to be very difficult for the Chinese to throw their AIs in prison if they dissent. Uh, um, so I, I'm sort of regretting now that this is called the world in 30 minutes because um, uh, I think we could speak for, for many more hours on this topic, but we are reaching the end. Um, and there is only one thing left to do on this podcast, and um, that is our bookshelf section. Do you have a specific book or television program or podcast that you've been uh, consuming recently that you'd like to recommend to our readers? Oh, um, Jeremy, there's so many. One of the joys of writing a book that was so comprehensive, that looked at the, the three empires, that looked at privacy and antitrust and national security, surveillance, um, so many different aspects that I, I did read a, a, a several just excellent books. Maybe I, I mentioned one that, that is not obvious for all the, the readers of foreign or listeners of foreign policy related podcasts, but there's a brilliant book by Sebastian Nawabi called The Power Law, uh, Venture Capital and Making of the New Future. And that was very crucial for me in understanding how the US model works. What is the role of the venture capital and how it has fueled that thriving tech economy, and also what was the role of the American venture capital in contributing to China's uh, tech industry's growth. And, and this is one of the issues that I spend a lot of time thinking about when I um, try to understand why the EU has failed to create a thriving tech economy and what it would take for the EU to get there. So in the book, I try to challenge this argument that the EU's inability to produce the leading tech companies is somehow the result of its commitment to rights-driven model and digital regulation. I think there are more fundamental issues, including the big difference when it comes to the US and the EU in their ability to fund innovations in their their respective markets. So Malabi's book is a really great way to understand the logic of the powerful venture capital market and also then it explains well why the U.S. has been so successful as it has been. Fascinating. Um, okay, for me, I, I'm a considerably less erudite than that. Um, and uh, I've been watching uh, a new Apple TV series called Slow Horses, uh, which is a show about some very failed spies uh, in MI5 in London. Um, and their uh, adventures in trying to prevent the end of the world. And uh, what's interesting to me about it is less the spy story um, than the sort of lessons in management that it gives. Because essentially the leader of this team is trying to motivate a group of misfits and the ways in which he does that, which are both 
harsh and hilarious. Um, I'm definitely taking as uh, management lessons. I wanted to, to use that moment to warn everybody at ECFR about that. So I would recommend that to everyone. It's also just good fun to watch. So if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast and you're enjoying my ongoing coup against Mark Leonard's dictatorial control of the world in 30 minutes, please let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, hopefully, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. We'll put a link to all of the bookshelf selections we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Anu Bradford and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Maria Faro Saratz. <laughs>